This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. This is episode 307 of the Craft Beer Bring podcast. And for a little bit of background, a few weeks ago, we brought back a very special event with the help of our friends at Russian River Brewing. It had been four years since we last held a brewer's retreat way back in those pre-pandemic times of 2019. And frankly, if I'm really being honest, we didn't know if we'd ever do them again. Um, you know, but over the years, we started to miss the experience of getting back to homebrew basics with legendary brewers, you know, of just brewing for the, the sheer love of brewing itself. And when Vinny and Natalie offered out of the blue to host the retreat, we knew, we just knew we couldn't say no. The event was everything I hoped it would be a kind of, you know, pinch me. I can't believe this is really happening experience that I just didn't want to end. It was, you know, magical and dreamy and all of those things. Um, it felt like such a special, special experience to share with everyone. Um, attendees, featured brewers, everyone, everyone. Uh, in the mornings before we brewed, I moderated some panel discussions with uh, with some of our featured brewers. Over the next couple of weeks of the podcast, I'm going to share some of those with you. Uh, the experience won't quite be the same. Um, you can't taste the beers that people are talking about on some of these things. Uh, but I think the glimpses into motivation and processes, you know, with some of these most inspiring brewers working today is something that we just, just have to share. This episode is the first of three, a panel discussion on the Hazy IPA featuring Henry Wynn of Monkish, JC Tetro of Trillium, and Neil Fisher of Weldorks. Uh, we had some questions from the audience over the course of all the panels when we didn't have a mic out there. So I'll restate some of those where necessary so you can understand what folks were saying. Uh, one of the most prolific questioners was Sierra Nevada founder Ken Grossman, funny enough. Um, he kept us all on our toes and certainly kept the conversation interesting. We're going to jump into that conversation in a second. But first, G&D Chillers, the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, are proud of the cool partnerships they've built over the past 30 years. GD Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and reliability with 24-7 service and support. Want to maximize efficiency in your chiller? GD's microchannel condensers are designed for less power draw. Their lighter weight and more compact design uses up to 70% less refrigerant, which means a lower GWP and lower operating costs. Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com or call to discuss your next project. Also, this episode is sponsored by BSG, whose mission is simple to help brewers craft the best beer possible. This is why BSG hops are sourced directly from growers and processed at their FSSC certified facility, giving you access to high quality and unique varieties like Cashmere, Comet, Triumph, Eldorado, and many more. Discover a whole universe of hop sensory at bsgcraftbrewing.com slash hops. And as your brewery making its own ciders, seltzers, and other beverages beyond beer, if you need a central source for fruit flavor, Old Orchard has you covered. Old Orchard supplies flavored craft juice concentrate blends to beverage brands for the production of beer, cider, seltzer, wine, spirits, kombucha, and more. Flavor your lineup and streamline your sourcing by heading on over to oldorchard.com slash brewer. Before we get started, if you're planning a brewery, you don't want to miss our Brewery Accelerator event in Denver this October. Uh, we keep all of them small and hands-on and help you understand those things you don't know that you don't know. Go to breweryworkshop.com for more information. Now onto the panel. Um, let's just start it off with a kind of a broad kind of conceptual question about, about hazy IPA. And we're just going to call it hazy instead of New England style, just for simplicity's sake. Um, you know, 
as you think about making these beers, and maybe we'll start with you, JC, since hmm. you're actually in New England uh, and we're one of the uh, early movers and pushing this this kind of development of the style. You know, it, what what does it embody for you conceptually when you think about this beer? What is it for you, and uh, you know, what are you trying to, to accomplish um, when you make beer in this way? So I, when, whenever I'm asked about where did this come from, what do you think about it, what does it mean to you, I, I always come back to the early days, you know, as a home brewer, um, and then the the, con the concept of eventually having a signature style around hoppy beer. Um, my frame of reference was one of my heroes, Vinny, um, and we made the pilgrimage out here, and uh, drinking Pliny on draft was an incredible thing. Um, but how do you do something different than that? Uh, there was a, the host of uh, newer hops that were available, and um, I never had a, a mentor. So I was combining different types of yeast with these newer hops to kind of develop that signature style. Um, and then through continuous process improvement, we, along with lots of other folks, kind of discovered that uh, something different was happening uh, that made the beer taste and smell in an incredible way but looked very, very strange. Um, so I kind of had to put that aside uh, when we fir first made our batch of Congress Street, our first IPA. It just looked like it was still fermenting. Um, uh, but it tasted and smelled awesome. And after a week, it wasn't dropping bright. And we didn't have the money to put it down the drain. And it also didn't feel right to put it down the drain. I did know what other uh, brewers and beer fans would think of it because um, uh, I was that person. Um, I, I just knew that it was it was something special and different, um, and it became what was our differentiator in those early days, um, and we didn't really have any other options. But we always brew in, in, uh, for uh, taste and aroma first, and then appearance was whatever it wanted to be. I always think about Hazy IP in particular is this kind of nexus of brewing technique and ingredients in agriculture, you know, that if you know the techniques alone existed without the agricultural development and uh, hops that were becoming available in the early 20 teens much more readily available you know it really wouldn't have been as compelling a thing and uh, and so it is kind of this mix of you know of technique and ingredient in that kind of way how how much of the style development was driven by you know, exploring new hops that were becoming available at that time. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was I mean, at the time, Mosaic was kind of, you know, nobody had really heard of it, and we didn't even have that on our radar early. Um, and then we were kind of uh, uh, playing around with different hop varieties just because it did seem to be like a binary thing. Either there was bioconversion happening, and you're ending up with these explosive, uh, fruity, tropical New England IPAs, or you weren't. So it was Centennial was in the was in the word category. Uh, Chinook then wasn't. It is now actually. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that um, uh, it was a, a trial and error sort of basis, and we had a series called Dry Stack that we were trying all these different varieties. This was you know in 2013. We're trying all the different varieties to see which ones were and weren't making this bioconversion happen, and Mosaic was one of those that 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 was. So yeah, it was a. Uh, always a, an experimental process and, and still is today. Did you call it bioconversion even back then? <laughs> no, it seems actually like biotransformation is such a hot uh, buzzword it, right now. It, but yeah, no, then we didn't really understand what was going on. I don't yeah. know we fully entirely do still. Um, 
uh, I was actually calling it an emulsion because I have a culinary reference yeah, uh, before yeah. that. And it's what it seemed like to me. There was, I, I thought it was like hop oils. Something was causing it to stay up in suspension and keep those really incredible aromatics up in suspension, much like when you're making a vinaigrette. <laughs> Talk to me about yeast choice. Obviously that, you, I mean, yeast has become such a signature piece of this, um, you know, but obviously it may not have been an initial attempt as you were brewing these just to use what we would now call haze positive yeast. Um, it became a byproduct of, uh, you know, of other things and then it just started working that way as you pulled those things together. But, uh, you know, what, what drove some of those early decisions? There, uh, were, there were plenty of other yeasts you could have used at the time too, that would have accomplished different things. Sure. Yeah. We, we've, I think we we're on our, our fourth house yeast strain. Really? Yes. So, um, in the early days and that, you know, if you're going to make an IPA, it should be dried out really well. Cause kind of all these West coast references. So we're, we're using, um, WLP 007 is the, the stone strain um it kind of had british roots to it and it it is it, it was uh a you know bioconverter for us and um but not reliably so and not uh to the degree that lots of others were so we're, we were happy with it we loved it but we also wanted to understand what else could could be out there that could drive more character more flavor because i had tried other beers um that I felt were punchier, you know, a little bit more explosively aromatic. I didn't know if it was a function of the uh, access to hop selection and, the, and th those things that were driving that. Um, but, you know, once a homebrewer, always a homebrewer. You always want to try something different. You're always trying to uh, try something new. And it kind of feeds back to our, our ethos of continuous process improvement as well. Um, you know, just get 1% better, a little bit better, a little bit better. Sometimes you make big leaps forward and sometimes you just take a step sideways. But in, unless you're continually moving, you're, you're not going to get better. Yeah. Henry, what, what was your entree into uh, to Hazy IPA? Yeah, I, I'm sure everyone has seen pictures of the the sign in the tap room, you know, but it was, uh, we don't need to dwell on that, but, uh, but there was a moment where you ultimately decided that you could find some creativity and explore some flavor in these beer styles. What, uh, you know, what drove you to then, you know, push and pursue in this kind of field? What was it that uh, became the creative motivation for you? I think at some point we realized we should make an IPA and we were doing Belgian IPAs and that was our entree. But I think in our um, personal, I don't know, trying to figure out how do we feel about West Coast IPA? And there was always a thing I didn't like about it was the dissonance between the aroma of some fruitiness. And then once you drink it, it was a little too, it didn't translate into what you were smelling in the aroma. And it was always like maybe some grapefruit pith. And I really didn't enjoy that as much. Um, and I think at some point, you know, doing a lot of uh, fruited saisons and, you know, barrel-aged beers, we were getting a different clientele coming in and they were doing bottle shares in the tap room and they would always bring me, you know, different things to try. And so I remember we poured at a Shelton Fest and Treehouse was next to us and I heard about Trillium, Treehouse and the whole like growler phenomenon, people like lining up to get growlers of an IPA. It like blew my mind. So I wanted like, you know, it was Dean pouring there. I was like, I want to try some of this Julius. And so I tried, I'm like, this is an IPA, huh? 
And then the, over the, you know, the course of the weekend, I was getting, I, I realized there was something that I did enjoy about drinking Julius as an IPA. It was very different, but there was so much, like that dissonance was kind of removed and what you smelled is what you also tasted. And then that kind of got my mind going and um, trying to figure out, well, how do I really feel about this? And then I remember someone brought a bottle of Trillium. It was when there were 750 hoppy beer. It was, it was, there was some yeast caked on and it was just the cap. And it, it wasn't was, yeast. Yeah, I know. But, but you know, that's, that hop, that's, hop material, yeah. but that's my mindset. I'm like crazy. But I remember it was the biggest like mango explosion. And I was like, what is this? And so um, I, I think that moment, tasting all the different things and then uh, trying to figure out, well, what is this? What is driving this? What do I like about this? And, you know, people were very um, fascinated with just like a softness that existed in a number of beers, like Hill Farmstead beers. And so I, I realized that's what I enjoyed was a certain softness. And then the, I think mouthfeel in beer is always a, um, a fun, elusive thing to always consider. And these beers had that. So um, we decided to explore uh, without actually telling people we were trying to make IPAs. We would just put on the board. We realized that we were calling beers Belgian IPAs. And then at some point we were just calling it, I don't know what we call the copy beer or something like that. And no one, you know, thought or ever called us out like, this is not a Belgian beer. They just assumed there was a Belgian beer. And even years of making this, uh, brewers would always assume that we were using a Belgian yeast. So, you know, yeah. that, that kept so, things so very you like- using Belgian yeast? I'm just yeah. kidding. <laughs> so that kind of kept things very like um, enigmatic for us. And I always like that not being uh, uh, defined. Well, you know, and, and it's not that far off from, uh, you know, certain Belgian techniques in terms of using, yes. you know, wheat and oats and whatnot and uh, building that kind of haze. It's very, very Witbeer-esque in that sense. Yeah. So for like the big driving thing, and at some point we had to write some uh, copy for like, why are we doing this? And, you know, this is when web uh, websites would actually have a blog section. And so there was like, one of the 10 blogs we ever, entries we ever wrote. And one was like, what is, what is our IPA? And it was trying to figure out, okay, what is it? So I, I think for me, it was always this yeast forwardness that as a brewery that still makes a lot of Belgian beers and everything we do, we think about yeast and the way we approach making these IPAs isn't that far off from how we brew our Belgian beers. We do look at temperature you know, rises, doing a cooler initial ferment, trying to stabilize some alcohol flavor, especially in our triple IPAs. And then we do let them free rise to some degree in uh, different fashions from fermentation and also during um, dry hop. We're just looking for temperature free rising. We'll be back in a second with more from the panel, but first, AccuBrew now monitors specific gravity to ensure consistent results and detect problems before they ruin a batch. The AccuBrew system is designed to give you unprecedented insight into the fermentation process 
monitor gravity, fermentation activity, clarity, and temperature, schedule reminders, and receive alerts anywhere, anytime. AccuBrew's CIP-ready device is designed to stay out of your way. They know your time and space is precious, and they take up as little of both as possible. No more samples, no cleaning, and no calibrations. Set it and forget it. To learn more about AccuBrew, head on over to AccuBrew.com. I-O. Also, brewing is currently one of the most innovative, adaptive, and fast-paced industries in the world. With consumer demand shifting to the latest and greatest trend, it can be difficult for production teams to keep up with the requirements. The ProFill series of rotary can fillers from ProBrew are accelerating plant production everywhere. These can fillers run at speeds between 100 and 600 plus cans per minute, while achieving precise and consistent filling volumes not achievable by most inline and mobile fillers. For more information, visit www.probrew.com or email contact us at probrew.com to learn exactly how they can take your operations to the next level. ProBrew, brew your beer. And some brewers want their water profile to be that of their city, and that sounds great, except for one factor. Depending upon the city and day, the water quality can vary 40 to 50%, so a Monday brew can taste very different from a Thursday brew. Savvy brewers know this since beer is like 95% water. The best method is to start with the same water every time and reverse osmosis gives you that power. Visit uswatersystems.com for a free expert analysis. Now back to the panel. Neil, why don't you talk about your uh, hazy IPA uh, process here? And obviously we've talked, you and I have talked about that quite a bit, Um, but we also have Juicy Bits. uh, That's the first beer out for you all right now. Um, talk about, uh, you know, your philosophy in, in creating this beer and the process behind it. I mean, I think, you know, to recant the story of how we kind of got into more specifically Hazy IPA and Juicy Bits kind of being born our first anniversary, a lot of it was your influence with, you know, just our, as we were opening our brewery, trying new IPAs and you and another buddy were very, you know, hey, these, these you know, New England style IPAs are very different. You guys should at least give them a look. And in Colorado at the time, um, I think I think Odd Thirteen was probably the only one that was was first out the gate with Codename Superfan. They had the test batches, so we got to kind of see that very early stage as we were developing our. I was tired of having to trade for JC's beer and get it shipped out from the, the from New England. And I, so, I drank yeah. a lot of JC's beer thanks to you. So thanks for uh, whoever traded for that. Thank you for getting us on the radar. But it became a compelling, you know, enough difference for me because we we opened with flagship ipa that was now you know more west coast inspired steam barrel it was still kind of comes in and goes in different iterations but um similar to jc i think Vinny had just always been i think the transparency about his recipe and his process for Pliny the elder i i I'm, if you're home brewer and you haven't brewed you know at least some version of Pliny the elder clone like that was for me one of the most formative brewing experiences getting to know hops better to have and in colorado we were fortunate enough to have access to Pliny on a somewhat limited base. It was, you know, once a month, you know, which store gets it, you know, you know, Fridays at 4 PM, make sure you, you get there early enough to grab one of the bottles in the cooler. And so we got to try it. We didn't have it as accessible as, um, I think Odell IPA was probably for me, the most formative in our market. And still, I consider something that pushed us into this idea of like where IPAs could, could push that, um, hop expression without solely focusing on bitterness while still having some, some, you know, some, baseline bitterness to support all that. So that kind of, I think really all played into this influence of like, what do we want to do at Weldworks? And we wanted to do something different. We didn't want to do exactly what JC was doing. We didn't want to do what Odell was doing. Um, we wanted to really just drive what we thought was our own perspective on it. And for us, a lot of it was the, the hot pro, the, the combination between Citra and Mosaic. I think 
we had we saw similar even in 2015 when we were you know trying to get pop contracts that were nearly impossible. Um, we knew we'd be getting spot for Citra. Citra was pretty much like the very first, like we have to have Citra and Mosaic. We felt the same way. Um, and both of those were spot until we could get contracts. So it was a little bit of a challenge, which is why we didn't really get to experiment much until our first anniversary when our, you know, after getting through that first hop year. And then Eldorado is one that I think I would say Eldorado has the bigger impact on Juicy Bits as a brand. Um, it's a really fun, um, hop that I think had not been utilized in the same way. I, you know, there weren't a lot of hazy IPAs at the time that were using Eldorado, really not a lot of IPAs in general. Kind of flew under the radar, but it had a lot of the kind of fruit expressions that we loved. It seemed like it had, um, especially from an oil perspective, we were, you know, we started selecting it very shortly on after developing Juicy Bits. So that really did improve. And, um, and over the years, getting to know CLS a lot better um, without knowing kind of any impact that Juicy Bits had, but getting to hear how they see Juicy Bits and even just the recipe and craft beer and brewing to be a little bit of a point of inflection for how El Dorado at least became a little bit more um, considered for IPA brewing. So, um, but for us, it really was just more of a, a, initially it was a logistics challenge. Like we need something somewhat affordable that we can find on spot market. It's not gonna cost the $20 a pound that Citra was on spot at the time. Um, and it was just a happy accident that I think it, in, in most of our selections, I'd say over the last six years or so, El Dorado's been at the very top, if not the best of our our lots. Not to say we haven't loved our Citra and Mosaic, but those El Dorado selections, really we leaned into the, those expressions into how we wanted to progress Juicy Bits. So um, I, th I think for us, it's a lot of these, the same kind of recurring themes. How do, how do we take our own, you know, what everyone else is doing so well and put our own perspective on it? Sure. Well, let's talk about it. Let's keep the, the hop conversation going there. And maybe you can pick up on this, JC. All of you all brew lots of variations of hazy IPA these days. And, uh, um, you know, but what, what are some of your foundational hop combinations? And then, uh, you know, do you have some lanes that you then push these into in terms of exploring different kind of flavor profiles? And then uh, are there some ways that you use hops of specific origin or, uh, you know, hops with specific flavor, uh, profiles in order to, to really, you know, play in that kind of expressive place. We, we, um, even, even early, we, we kind of recognized that, um, if you were trying to create signet kind of very prominent and distinct pronounced and clear flavor and aroma, uh, that combining three, four, five different hops uh, in close to relative proportion, it just became very indistinct. Hmm. Uh, intensity may be there, but it's, it became indistinct. So uh, quite early. Which again, was a technique that most IPA brewers were yes. using purposely at yes. that point in order to maintain consistency. Right. You know, but at the expense of individual character. Right. I think we were driving so much distinctive character through through this approach that uh, we very quickly realized that that was not a good approach for what we were doing. Uh, and we started our street series of, of IPA. Um, we, we, did want to, we did want to have a common thread through all of our, uh, our IPAs or, uh, or our, all of our hoppy beer. And that's where actually Columbus came in, <laughs> um, which uh, people today think is like an absolutely insane thing to be doing with uh, New England IPA or hazy, hazy beer. Um, uh, because of the, oftentimes you find quite a lot of allium in, uh, in Columbus. Um, but we, we recognized there was plenty of range within a sing, single hop that you didn't really need to layer them up very much. So uh, Fort Point is Citra. 
Congress Street is Galaxy. Sleeper Street is El Dorado. So, uh, and then we kind of were um, uh, taking that brewer's approach to making these beers, not necessarily like a branding or marketing <laughs> approach. We were just like looking around at the streets that were in our neighborhood. Oh, it's Sleeper Street is El Dorado. I mean, it made no sense really. Um, but for the beer nerds, they were super stoked to be able to understand in uh, the distinctive differences between each of the different uh, hops. And as brewers, we're getting to learn them as well, because this is all very new to, to everybody. Um, there are a few a few, a few of our beers that uh, are hop combinations. They usually are limited to two or three. Mm -hmm. And there's almost always a 70 to 80% favorite in, in proportion. So uh, that's, our, that's our general approach. There's a couple of beers that we do have like that laundry list um, of hops, but they still are the 60 to 70 to 80% of a singular variety to drive that uh, that key element uh, that, that drives all the way through. And how much Columbus and how do you add it just to kind of create a central <laughs> thread through these? Yeah, so uh, uh, when we started, it was uh, the Columbus was the, the bittering hop and it was probably, I don't know, it ended up being like maybe 5% of the dry hop. It was it was a pretty low percentage. Yeah. It was really just a sprinkling in there, but it, that was that was a, our attempt for a house flavor uh, that kind of ran through that uh, made it a, a distinctive and recognizable and differentiated beer from Trillium. Uh, we no longer do that. <laughs> <laughs> Henry, when I taste your hazy IPAs, they also have, uh, you, know, you know, there's a, a West Coast kind of bitter a little, maybe slightly more bitter character to it, maybe slightly more structured uh, than some, um, you know, strictly, you know, New England varieties. Talk to me about how you, working in that form, tried to, you know, make these beers feel like Southern California hazy IPAs and, uh, you know, how you go, uh, go about building uh, hops in those beers to accomplish that. Uh, I think it has to do with our water primarily and pretty high in sulfate. Uh, lots of TDS. They made that TDS count as unreal. Mm. Um, and we always knew we had that um, like very strong minerality. You know, always whatever we would like try early on, we always had that like that sharpness, that bite. And so I had to contemplate whether I want the softness that I was trying in some of these beers, but I knew that our water was creating this and the more I thought about what we're trying to do it seemed like that what we're able to get with the hops and that biotransformation just kind of give this really strong like pungency of I don't know I, I always still call it like a like every time we like make one of these beers we're always looking for a wow factor if we're trying a new lot of citra whatever we're like we're looking for this punchy pungent yet creamy like candy quality and so we want that to be kind of like the initial mid palate and then allowing our, our water to kind of dry it out and, and then finding out you know being a belgian brewery it actually fits us better because it's you know it allows this very experiential beer to still dry out your palate maybe be like a digestive, you know, like for, you know, Belgians so that you would want the next drink rather than have a lingering sweetness that doesn't um, help you with a, a finish. Using the water to dry it out. I, I love that. Um, you know, what do you, what level of uh, total dissolved solids uh, do you end up with in this water? It's uh, close to 500. Which oh is, man. Uh, 
So it's it's barely within legal Jeez. limits. <laughs> Almost Jester King levels. I think they're at what seven hundred or something. Yeah. I mean, it's it's insane from their raw water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's pretty like I, there was this uh, Netflix show with Zac Efron where he goes to like taste water and he goes all the different TDS and you could just see their facial expression when they're trying like a two thousand or five thousand TDS water, and um, it's been something I've been very sensitive. Like I think we were in last year in Slovenia and there was this, um, uh, their, just their mineral, like Pellegrino bottle. It was so high TDS, you tasted it. I'm like, so I'm online trying to check for TDS level. I'm like, yep, I'm pretty been sensitive with high TDS. It's something we struggle with a lot, especially the past couple of years, the TDS level. It's been kind of more perceived, mm. so. Neil, have you made uh, Hazy IPA relevant and uh, you know unique in the, Rocky Mountain market. It's definitely changed since we started producing juicy bits, which has been fun to see all the, like even within Colorado, cause we're, you know, we're, we have a pretty equal influence of West coast, especially kind of origins for a lot of our, our established breweries. And then a lot of influence for hazy IPA from kind of new England and a lot of the newer breweries in Colorado. So we have a really good cross section that I think still has both. We've got that, you know, with, Westbound and Down and Comrade that I think are some of the best, you know, West Coast focused IPA brewers. And then obviously some really good hazy IPA producers, in, you know, between Cerebral and, and Outer Range and a couple others. So I think it's fun to see how we kind of can fit into that. West Coast for us, um, we'd still love to be, you know, in those experimental ways to we can incorporate some things that we love about that um so this second beer is uh, resident welder this is what we did with resident culture um this is with the sunburst chico i think is what they're calling it it's the pineapple chico that uh, berkeley um just launched and it's a really fun uh, approach to um acetate i think is the it, it's not thialized so we've done the thialization thialized yeast trials and to varying degrees of success, but this one was fun, which is definitely more of a West coast, um, yeast. So this is blended two tanks, one with our house and then one with the sunburst. Um, what really stuck, you know, stuck out to us was just the intense amount of aroma on the sunburst tank. Um, even prior to dry hopping, everything else being equal. It was a really fun trial to see in process. We don't really get to in, in hindsight, it would have been fun to package both and do them side by side plus the blend. Um, for us, honestly, the blend was more because we we don't sell as much and we don't have as much success selling clear West Coast IPA. So it's kind of a way to hedge our bets and see like, well, let's just, it'll be a blend and it kind of brings in what some stuff that Resident Culture was experimenting with. But um, I think that's for us kind of where we're really trying to, to understand. I think, you know, buyer transformation, we're talking about all that from a, I think all of us are, are doing our own trials to, to get you know, a little bit better understanding of all these, um, interactions that are, whether, you know, what we're looking at from thylized yeasts that, um, yeah, we've had some different, different successes and, and lack of success there. And then trying to understand a little bit more about, you know, for, for us, from a dry hop perspective, biotransformation, what are we, what are, what can we empirically pull out of this? And then what kind of data will we see the industry pull out, um, hop studies and things that, I think will influence the way we make beer in the next, you know, five to 10 years. I think we're still on the cusp of a better understanding. I think it is a buzzword and kind of a, uh, you know, a hot topic just because there's not as much, you know, hop creep. I think, um, we all have a much clearer understanding now than we did five years ago. And so, um, 
that's I think influenced the way a lot of us, especially in the commercial side, have had to adjust the way we either dry hop or the way we, you know, condition beer, the way we treat it to avoid hop creep or to work around it. And I think we'll see some similar kind of adjustments and innovations related to transformation and kind of bio interactions. JC, you mentioned you're on your fourth house yeast, uh, you know, so, so clearly uh, experimenting yeah, in the yeast uh, you know, space is something that you're used to now. Um, you know, is there, you know, how, how much do you work with some of the new evolving, innovating yeast, especially on that thiol side? And, uh, you know, uh, are you working with those and how have you been, uh, you know, finding, uh, working with those? Yeah, we, we've been, um, doing trials with thiolized yeast for maybe two years or so. We have not released any of them. Um, really? Why not? Um, we haven't found how they fit with us sure. just yet. Uh, we we are uh, interested in a particular strain from Berkeley right now, and it has the, the thiol gene turned way down. Mm. Um, it to me is too narrow of a of a range of aroma and flavor, so it's like hyper distinctive, and it does it it uh, kind of stomps on lots of other stuff for us. Uh, but the turned down gene version. Um, uh, was a great accent, um, but it was kind of is hiding a little bit, right? It was uh, it was complementary, and it was like that. Okay, that's like ten percent of the flavor and aroma, not seventy to eighty percent. So um, I think we're we're finding a, a good spot for it, um, but we didn't want to uh, rush there just to get there first. You know, um, we're also uh, lucky to be experimenting with Joss's uh, uh, from Garage Project, who kind of came up with a. Uh, a lot of the advanced thiol project uh, products, um, uh, experimenting with, uh, with his new liquid thiol uh, precursor product. Oh, okay. So, so that's uh, Phantasm is his dried yes, product. Yep, yep. So um, very excited for for him, and like there's tremendous amounts of applications. Brings the cost of production way down, the scale mm-hmm. of production way up, and it's a very exciting thing. So um, we have lots of different uh, ideas about uh, where it could go, uh, but we're um, there's lots of lots and lots of pro- projects that we have ongoing that um, are very interesting but don't fit, um, and that'll always be the case. And if it does actually make it to um, make it to the make it into a can or undrafted trillium, uh, it usually is seen at least a couple of years of of R and D. It's incredible. You know, it it's is too much, probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, you don't have another CFO that you have. You can still, uh, you know, push those projects and make them. Well, Esther's here. Oh, <laughs> she, she lets you get away with that. Yeah. Well, it's um, it's it's really kind of how how Trillium came to be, yeah. um, and will always carry that through. It's such an important part of what we do. Um, but we have much more patience now. When it, we, you know, I I come from a science background, so we we do the scientific approach. Is it repeatable as well? So, mm-hmm. and, um, sometimes we find it's not repeatable and we're not sure why. And if we're not sure why, then that means we don't know enough about it. Um, that subject of where do we go now in the thiol world is something that we've, we've been you know trying to address through the content of the magazine, same kind of way that once you figure out what you can do and how far you can go, then you pull back and figure out how to use that to make something that tastes good, that people want to drink. And I think that's, that challenge that we're all facing. Henry, how do you all, you know, work that in? Obviously being a Belgian focused brewery, yeast is a, you know, huge, uh, you know, piece of that. Where's your, what's your experimentation in that world look like? Uh, we haven't done too much with all the thiolized yeast 
I don't know, kind of resistance to a lot of the new things. Like pretty, I love T90 pellets. It's always our preference. Uh, we did try the cryo. Every, you know, every time you, you see the new product description, people send you these things and you're like, oh, this is going to be the game changer. And then it just doesn't really work out. But you understand why the products exist because it's helping someone else. So like cryo, I wish I liked cryo more. It sounds so yeah. cool, right? But we've done beers with cryo and, and it just doesn't have that same expression that T90 pellets will, will give us. Um, like a, there was this beer, uh, Yakima Chief sent us this um, blend. They called it, you know, some cheesy name like juice bomb hero whatever right so you you're thinking they solved it this is the right combination and that beard that it did not biotransform hmm. and then the finished beer was like all right should we send this down the drain what do we do how do we like market this beer and uh it, it just didn't have the quality that it's trying to sell you and every time we like drink these kind of beers that have this um like we, we could tell when brewers are trying to make this beer in trying to make it juicy soft sweet but they're hitting it they're approaching it almost too strategically that they're kind of just missing some of this uh a more simple essence that you can um just focus on it in knowing your yeast and how it, you know, likes the interaction with hops a, a certain way. I don't know. So we, we don't experiment too much with a lot of the new things. We just really focus on um, what we're doing. Uh, hop selection every year is a challenge and just trying to keep some consistency and uh, improve. It always seems like we're taking with selection two steps forward and one step back. And then we're like, all right, we're going to approach selection different next year. So this sample that just that everybody just got is is your beer. Talk to us about this. I, you know, it's interesting to taste them, you know, back to back with Wild Works. They they are different approaches. This is a like lighter in color, but also, uh, you know, it seems to have a lighter body, even if it is even more hazy. Um, and then also has you know some um, like an intense you know flavor approach. Um, yeah. You know, how, talk, talk to us about designing this and, uh, you know, how you go about doing that. Uh, this is uh, Cousin of Death. It's double dry hopped, uh, double IPA with um, Citra Matueka. And this is 50-50 Citra Matueka. First beer we ever released was a Matueka Ford beer we did with Other Half. And on paper, I don't really like Matueka as much. And then I, and so when we try to, uh, the first beer we did with, uh, that was Matueka Ford, we've always tried to tone it down. And we always found that it actually has a place like leading it. And so we try to keep Matueka pretty, um, a little heavier than on paper I, I would imagine I, I would. But it is 50-50 Citra Matueka. Uh, the Citra, it's a blend of different lots of Citra. We do have multiple uh, vendors that we buy um, certain hops like Nelson we always have like four or five lots it seems like and then Citra we always have five or six lots and just over trying the different uh, Citra Ford beers with different lots 
and just kind of figuring out what we want out of uh, out of it. And then also from a so business perspective. So you'll take a different lot of Citra yep. for a specific beer. Yeah, you know, because I think there's I think there's this crazy idea that you just make, you know, Citra Mosaic beers all the time and put different brand names on them. But that's an interesting approach. <laughs> I, I mean that in the no, nicest so, possible way. So, no, it is. But, it is. So, like, you know, but I, it's interesting that you might use different lots of Citra to accomplish different we call, things. During these so, so when I call out for the dry off for a beer, uh, which I still do, I'll refer to it by lot numbers. I won't say really like just Citra blank unless it's the only lot that we have. Mm. So yeah, Citra, we, we have five lots. I know which ones I like for our West Coast, which ones, um, you know, if we're looking at finishing gravity, if it's a little low and we need a little body booster, then we go with this one lot to kind of build up the body. But otherwise, certain beers do have certain lots that we dedicate to it or a certain blend to get a certain profile. Like over the years, um, I don't know if we've complicated things with hop selection, it seems like. I don't know. Like Yeah, it seems I, like you have. So no no but, <laughs> or but the industry and as a general. Yeah. Look, I think when we all started, we just if we could get Galaxy, yeah. we didn't care what right. lot it was. Right. We just used the Galaxy and it was great. And then once you find out that there's That's because thing, it was. It was. It, oh, was, yeah, great. it was it was great. <laughs> and then it's not anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole whole different yeah. It's uh and then you had Citra we love Galaxy, and we find that we want our Citra to perform more like Galaxy than we love a hop like a West Coast legend of Simcoe. And I'm, I always select the Simcoe that is similar to my Citra, which my Citra should be like my Galaxy. Yeah. Every hop goes through that same cycle. And at every year, we get better at selecting and um, to keep a house flavor. But I wonder, though, like when we drink our beers, because it doesn't matter what you select, that bile transformation comes in, just changes things. And you're like, I didn't see that. So yeah. I, like we have two lots of citrus that came in and we were like, this is the lot. And we rubbed it, best citra. And then we had one, we thought it was okay. We kept, you know, and then we did two beers, citra Ford beers, and they were completely different. It was the opposite. The one that we didn't think as great, just the way it biotransformed and the flavors that we got from it. And the one that we, on paper, met all of our specs, because I would try to keep all the specs of all the hops that um, have always been winners for us. And we chose based on those specs. It didn't work out for us. So it's kind of odd. So there's always this experimenting and trying to figure out, like, when we, when we try this, is this Citra Matueka? Should it be more Citra? different lot of citra and you know more from the panel in a minute but first are you ready to start canning your craft beverages twin monkeys beverage systems is here to help this troop of engineers service techs and microbrew fanatics offers customizable packaging solutions for every craft their canning lines are affordable made in the usa and engineered to grow alongside the needs of your business visit twinmonkeys.net today to learn just how easy it is to get your craft into cans. Also, everybody knows that yeast plays one of the most important roles in brewing. No matter what style and recipe you choose, 
It influences flavor, aroma, acidity, brightness, and mouthfeel all at the same time. And bring a lager is no exception. Discover a whole soft lager range by Fermentis, covering from traditional to modern style lagers. Soft Lager S189 for the elegant lagers with floral notes. Soft Lager S23 for fruity and hoppy ones and soft lager W3470 for your neutral beers. Available in 500 gram, 100 gram, and 11.5 gram formats. Want to learn more about soft lager yeasts? Visit www.fermentus.com. And ABS Commercial has been a full-service brewery outfitter for over 10 years. They're proud to offer brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts to brewers across the country, as well as equipment for distilling, cider making, wine making, and more. They know the ins and outs of the brewing and installation process and can design the perfect setup for you, whether you're just starting out or looking to expand. Contact them today at sales at abs-commercial.com. To discuss your customized brewery needs, ABS Commercial, we are brewers. Now back to the panel. As you as you you know mentally categorize these different lots of citra that you you know keep back, like you know what kind of buckets do you put them in? I mean, what do you you know how would you describe them? And what's that range of citra? And where do you find like you know real significant points of differentiation between these lots? You know, do you? You know, do you have some way to lock this in your head? Like, this is how I describe this citra lot, you know, and how does that differ from, from another one? Like yeah. Trying to understand what that range is for folks that don't necessarily have I, the ability to, you know, smell and rub and taste all of these different lots. It's, it's kind of interesting to think about how you think about those. As we dry hop a beer, brewers will, you know, cut open the bag, do sensory on it, and then they'll start moving it up and dry hopping it. I want to be able to walk by and that citra is just without doubt that is the citra. And that's kind of like this, like um, it's intangible way of describing a certain quality. Now, after knowing that there's this thing that we always chase for, we do have ways of trying to describe it, whether it is um, we're always looking for a punchy creaminess as you smell it. If you don't have it, um, it's not really going to work. Uh, we do look at oil content. We uh, have found that over the years we prefer a higher oil content. Sometimes for selection, I only ask for a certain minimum of oil mm -hmm. content because um, I, I just think it transforms a lot better. Higher oil, um, higher alpha acid tends to work for us. But I don't know. It's kind of we don't we don't like hops that are too soft. We don't like hops that um, are, I don't know, it's kind of hard, hard to explain. If, if I'm rubbing a hop, I want a very long finish. Mm. And like you just keep smelling it and it keeps evolving on the table as you're just like rubbing and selecting it or um, analyzing it. I don't know, it's, it, you just do this over and over and over. I wish it was a lot more simple that, hey, JC, I'm out of Citra. Can you send me your Citra lot? Oh, it's great, or whatever, just borrowing from people. We never had problems with that early on, and now it just feels like we've complicated, like we only have to select our hops. Sure, sure. JC, how do you, uh, how do you, you know, get into the hop evaluation, hop selection process? And then, uh, you know, I loved Henry's comment about creaminess. You know, you also use hops not just for flavor, 
but also for texture and also, you know, they have a haze component and, uh, you know, certain hops perform better than others in those kinds of ways. How do you embark on that kind of creative process around hops and selecting? Yeah, Henry uh, mentioned how hops that kind of uh, express one way on the rub does not translate into the beer. So we had enough frustrating experiences with selection that um, we decided that that was a great way to rule out bad lots of hops, mm. but it was not a good way to select hops. Uh, so that's uh, a, a typical rub is step one for us. And then we do uh, cereal fermentations of all the, the lots that are available to us for selection. And then we select based on the resulting beer. So um, it's a, it's a, it's an it's an involved it's an involved process. There's a couple yeah. of couple brewers that I know that okay. do that as well. Um, it doesn't huh. have to be large, extensive, yeah. uh, uh, you know, panels, um, or or it can turn out to be that way, yeah. uh, depending on whether you've got enough shots on goal uh, and you've kind of refined your 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 rub and your kind of first pass. Um, uh, so that's what we do, and we will do that at a five pound per barrel rate on these on these uh, bench panels, uh, in order to get uh, an understanding how it's going to perform in a heavily dry hop beer, because that's when you can also start to uh, re reveal some additional flaws that you might not see at two or three pounds per barrel in the dry hop, um, and that has really uh, that's been a springboard for us for consistency. Uh, that, that type of quality that we want. We're not, we're not quite big enough um, to be able to select the right quantities of certain types of hops that would allow us to say, okay, this is our citra for um, this lightly dry hopped a lager. And this is for our pale ales. And this one is for our double IPAs. So we have to kind of compromise a bit and like, you know, where are we using those hops and which kinds of beers? And that's where the majority of them are going to go. So um, it otherwise would become far, too, far too complicated for us to select for each of the styles of beers. Now, uh, we tend to select more for, you know, more in the IPA world, it's kind of right down the middle and they still perform quite well in, in a, in a lager, for example. So yeah, it's, it's just a lot of R and D work. Um, but, uh, I have to say that we, we don't, ha we don't have clunkers now that we're trying to get rid of on the, on the secondary market. And that feels weird to be selling hops to people that uh, is, we don't think is great either. So, um, yeah. What, uh, you know, as you go through this process of evaluation and taking this kind of test and, uh, you know, understanding what, you know, talk to me about how, what does make it through from the rub and what have you been able through this kind of brewing process to realize you can count on from that initial rub and the things that will change or, you know, and end up in a different place once they go through fermentation. Um, so the, some of the things you start to pay attention to or then, and then don't have to pay attention as much to when you're rubbing, knowing that that's going to. Yeah. So the, the rub for us is really, like I said, it's that we're trying to eliminate bad stuff, yeah. you know, so allium, that's a no go. You can't, no, no place for that in, in our beers. It's just, just doesn't work. Um, uh, and, and we really, uh, have not seen a correlate. We've spent probably too much time, um, trying to correlate with total oils or certain oil profile, uh, that is going to then predictably result in this type of aroma, flavor, mouthfeel, et cetera. And we have not been able to find those correlations, um, which, you know, it just means we still don't know enough. Um, I'm sure there's folks out there that are 
you know, better resourced than we are that have been able to find correlations. Um, so we've kind of stopped doing that effort and just, it's, it's strictly a sensory profile from those, uh, from those fermentation panels. Um, so we are able to generally find, uh, intensity of aroma, but not necessarily quality of aroma from, from the rub. And it's, it's really about those, those, uh, those bench fermentations. Uh, Pete from Equilibrium started doing that after I told him about the, our crazy, crazy approach. Um, we do five, five gallon, uh, test fermentations and corny kegs. Um, we got the little, like we got a little floating stainless steel ball, um, that allows us to take samples. Cause, um, you know, you're drawing from the top of the, of the, of the keg instead of pulling off from the bottom and that allows us to get a result that's relatively close to what we would get from, um, uh, from a tank, uh, faster without kind of the, uh, you know, all the particulate in it. Um, Pete uses, um, uh, seltzer bottles, you know, little, like one liter yeah. seltzer bottles. And, uh, I, I showed him, I, like, you know, it's a home brewer piece so you can get those twist on caps so you can force carbonate in, in the bottle. So he uses like, you know, 50 of those huh. when he's doing cereal fermentations. Yeah. It's amazing. Neil, yeah. what's your, uh, oh, we had a question. We have a question from Ken Grossman. Uh oh. <laughs> you know, why don't you come up here, Ken? <laughs> I don't think I can get a mic cable yeah. back there to you. Yeah, so it was about rebranding. Bitter, yeah, Bitter Gold was the original brand for El Dorado. And then how many of the more contemporary ops, you know, I, I think there is that idea of like what is Columbus, I think, is probably the one that comes to, to mind right away is, is something that his, at least for the last five, six years was not identified by hazy IPA producers as like, this is something we need to have. I think we all can agree. Citra Mosaic, we're all probably the two biggest in the galaxy. So has, has there been any kind of more traditional hop varietals that you guys have kind of come back to or experimented with? So, so Simcoe is a big one. It's not, you know, terribly old school, but Simcoe can bioconvert. And most of the growers aren't necessarily growing it to be the, you know, to be used in that way, unfortunately, uh, fortunately or unfortunately. Um, uh, Chinook uh, also bioconverts quite well, and that's very inexpensive. But again, it, you got to go through these extensive selection yeah. processes to find the correct expression and the right harvest and the right intention um, uh, from the grower. So, so like Indies, Chinook, Indie hops, uh, it's amazing. Yes. It is one of my favorite hops by the last year. And we brewers are always asking me, can you get more of that Chinook? You know, and we'll use it. I don't know. Sometimes I don't want to put it on the label. It might, yeah. it might you know, <laughs> deter sales. Um, yeah, for sure. Sam from other half probably won't like this, but uh, Nugget is one. There are moments where like, like we'll use Nugget and we're like, tell, tell me what's in this hop. And we're like, Galaxy. Nope, Nugget. Are there any you know, newer public varieties that uh, you all are interested in? I, mean, I know there's a, there's a lot of conversation around that, obviously. Um, Non-proprietary, non-licensing, more affordable hops for, for growers to grow. Um, you know, but obviously if they don't hit and land with your consumers and with you all, then, uh, they're not going to work. Are there any that, uh, you find promising or, or, uh, working with or testing on? We've really tried to figure out what we could source in Colorado. Colorado hops, um, have an interesting history that we're still trying to navigate as craft brewers. I think for better or worse, Coors, um, essentially gobbled up all the independent grown hops in Colorado for uh, Colorado native, um, which is a skew that is great for the growers. They were getting, you know, higher than market price, but it cut them off from, um, breweries our size that just could not spend 40% more than what we could source other places. So it has, I think now a negative effect on the 
the infrastructure of hop growing in, in Colorado. And obviously there's varietals that, you know, we're from a agriculture perspective, I think the Western slope is probably the only reliable place that might be able to grow some more contemporary varietals. So we've been at least engaged on, on what grows well in Colorado and, and Cascade has done historically pretty well. So we've definitely turned our eye more to that to see what opportunities that is, but that's, I think more driven by the local agricultural impact than it is, you know, as a, I think it's a great varietal. I just, for us, we wouldn't go, we'd be looking at it from a Colorado perspective. Is there a way for us to sort of some, I think there's just a, we get to, we miss that sense of, um, place for Colorado. We don't have a ton of Colorado malt that we source. We do have a few, um, but we'd love to make a few times a year, something more locally inspired. And I think that's where our kind of classic varietals, you know, citrus not going to grow in Colorado, but, um, Cascades seems to be doing okay. Willamette too. So let's talk about using advanced hop products. We talked about it in the last panel with West coast and I, you know, but it's, uh, you know, just as relevant to obviously here on the hazy side when you're trying to achieve flavor intensity, but also, you know, throwing such large hop loads in, you know, there's definitely both a flavor and an efficiency factor that comes with those. Um, both you know, that can be good or bad, uh, in that sense. So, you know, how have you all been, you know, using things like, you know, uh, cryo hops, lupo max, um, you know, extracts, flowable hop products, incognito spectrum, you know, um, these kinds of, uh, these products and how, how, how do you use those, you know, both for creative effect and as well as for, you know, efficiency in the brew house? echo a little bit of uh, Henry's sentiment that not that we don't see a purpose for all those, but we do have a challenge. Um, it does feel like every time you're trying to, you know, identify what new products and innovations are available, you kind of go through trials, especially with recommendations from the manufacturers and they don't always perform as anticipated. So, um, we, we really just almost any of our trials kind of point us back towards T90 for the most part, even cryo, uh, pellets we've, gotten a few here and there and we've converted some of our selections at times depending on the the use case um the things we've been most excited about lately the i think the phantasm opportunities uh, megamoto echo was one we really enjoyed using which was the where i think they added the phantasm to the pelletization um for our you know i think the liquid use would be something to to trial too so more just from thial less less just innovative hot products but hop adjacent but i think for us it is you know we don't have the resources to be able to do as many trials as we would like. So we kind of have to temper our ex experiment and our, not just our spirit of innovation, but how much we can scale. We don't have a pilot brewery. So our, our trial batches are 15 barrels on our 15 barrel brew house. Everything that goes on the 30 is pretty well established. So, um, I think we are really taking a lead from others that have driven that and have demonstrated, you know, results. Um, so, there's a few products we'll try first or, or out the gate, but usually we're kind of waiting on the, on the sidelines to see how things kind of come and go. And I think we have seen cryo in particular has kind of, it depends on your brewery and your use case and your dry hop. And I think on the dry hop side, we just have not has had, had as much success with cryo uh, pellet dry hopping as we have with just T90. So we've we've done the trials and pr pretty much uh, every um, every advanced hot product that there is, and um, both with the manufacturer's use and our own. Uh, you know, for for example, a, a lot. Of, I think Incognito's the recommendation is to put it into the whirlpool, and that's going to simulate dry hopping. It doesn't like not even not even close. So well, maybe if I, we decided to try to put it in cold side, um, and how do you get 
how do you get that product to even go in cold side is a, you know, is a, yeah, it's very messy. So, uh, we, um, combine it with a small amount of hot work and then kind of, you know, uh, mix the tank up like crazy at, at the addition. Um, it still doesn't work. <laughs> so th there's lots of examples where, uh, we have ruled out the use of, uh, of them or see the value. Um, the, the, the one place that we do that we did use for uh, use a little for a little while it was cryo in the whirlpool um, and that was really mainly an effort to try to drive the same character as a t90 pellet and uh, reduce loss um, but it just became a pain to then inventory you know select an inventory a cryo product and t90 pellets so we just don't do it anymore because there wasn't enough of a, uh, a quality um, or loss savings differentiation over the t90 pellet so um we are 100 t90 still yeah what does dry hopping process now look like for you i mean obviously lots of conversations out there about bioconversion biotransformation um you know there are you know when it comes to haze stability um more and more research coming out about that timing affecting uh you know uh, that haze stability in the beer itself uh you know, where do you all, where you land now in terms of how you dry hop in order to, you know, create a beer that has the flavor profile, but also the kind of technical characteristics that you're looking for? It's pretty much the same still. Um, when we're making Belgian IPAs, we were talking to all the West Coast brewers and just, you know, reading Vinny's dry hop process. We just mimicked it as a West Coast uh, process. When we were doing hazy IPAs, we kind of just did the same thing. We didn't really, we figured for a IPA, there should only be one process. So we go to terminal, make sure we, you know, give it a de-rest. Uh, once that clears, harvest, and then we dry hop. Uh, we don't rouse because of biotransformation. We do notice that a um, there's some definitely um, some movement within the tank. So there is a more of a homogenization. Like we, Learned that pretty quickly when we were putting vanilla in the dry hop, and then we could just see the vanilla flavor moving uh, around um, during the dry hop. But it's uh, we still dry hop for four days, crash, pretty simple. Uh, it 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 mostly starts with the hops and the combination of the hops, making sure we know the hops, and if we throw, we we won't get a beer that won't bile transform. If we get a beer that doesn't have a certain uh, aesthetic profile that we're looking for, then we look at the hop combination and it starts from more of that planning. You do get like high alcoholic, like crazy triple IPAs where that yeast is so stressed that it's not going to biotransform. And, you know, we've had conversations like, what do you, you know, Chasey and I, what do you do? with these beers, because we had some triple IPAs. We just give it fresh yeast and it will biotransform. Um, but I think it's more of a, I don't know, it happens. It, just give it time. The question is how long do you dry hop, whether four days is as necessary as two days. If you're seeing hop creep, if you're seeing uh, a big VD, uh, VDK pickup, maybe you want to shorten that time, maybe you want to lengthen that time. But for us, we've been pretty fortunate that four days always works. Some day, sometimes we'll taste it. Uh, we're, walk, we're tracking gravity, making sure that it is uh, returning to pre-dry hop. Um, 
And if it doesn't, we might give it a fifth day and just watch for some stability and flavor development profile. But pretty, pretty straightforward for us, nothing really yeah. crazy. Um, yeah, I think uh, we talk a lot of, about lagering. We try to crash it as long as possible. Hmm. So that's uh, very important things. I wish we had another bright tank so we can kind of push it over 31 days. We're kind of just like high 20s, 27 or so right now. But I, I would love to see an extra week. Lagering your hazy IPAs, it's a key feature there. How about dry hopping for you, JC? Uh, so we, uh, we don't top hop. We use a device called a, um, a dry hop neck. So, uh, the, you know, it was a pressure vessel and we're able to add the pellets to it. We create a, create a green beer loop and it, uh, pulls the, the pellets in, into that, into that, um, into that stream. And we're able to do so from the ground. So it's very safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get complete, uh, complete contact for all those hops. So, um, we have had to redesign our recipes around the hop creep phenomenon. Mm. Um, I mean, there's, there's some beers that we're, we're mashing at 162. It's kind of crazy. So wow. I, I, to, to Henry's point, yeast health has, plays, plays a huge part as to how much hop creep can occur. And um, for a lot of different reasons, we've gone to in-house yeast props. So we're, we're getting very clean, very healthy, high viability, high vitality yeast into each of our beers for the consistency's sake. And uh, the, the trade-off on the other end is more extensive hop creep, um, uh, even up through triple IPAs so and quadruple IPAs. So uh, we've had to redesign our recipes to accommodate f- for that hop creep. Um, we, you know, we do the VDK tests and make sure that we are at, they're adding the enzymes to help kind of push that through as well to reduce the need for that contact time. Uh, to reduce the the polyphenol uh, kind of harshness and and the the harsh resin bite that can happen for ex- from extensive contact time, um, so we're we're down in some cases to two to three days. Mm. Uh, but uh, we need to make sure that that gravity is stable before we're packaging. Yeah, and cold crushing. Yeah. How about you, all, Neil? Yeah, similarly, I think we're um, we tried lots of trials to see something soft crash dry hop, then a harder crash later, additional dry hop. And we've kind of simplified as well. And three to five days is probably average. Eh, probably four, four to six days is more average. Um, hop creep has been the other thing too. And it's, I think the thing that's really interesting and challenging is that every year is a little different. I think the lot selections, we've seen a better correlation to HSI in impacts. That seems to at least help us understand a little bit more. And then once you kind of dial that in from a new, it's only really a, a bigger challenge. I think once we get those um, new crop year lots, and then especially if we have multiple lots for specific varietals, it's it's almost understanding those because that seems like that has the biggest impact. So process-wise, we try to keep timing and, and rates and even just conditions similar, but then changing the hops, we do see a pretty drastic difference in some varietals and some lots for hop creep. So we did, we did trial a new device recently from Alpha Laval. Um, I, I won't go into the details about how it works, uh, but it does reduce contact time for the hot material um, a ton because you're basically flowing the beer through the device with the hops in it and it's kind of filtering as you go. Uh, so reducing that hop contact time and all the, all the amylase enzymes present in the hops really greatly reduced hop creep, but still allowed for all of the bioconversion to occur. Uh, 
So we're gonna have to, <laughs> if if and when we do get that device, it is operated also from the floor, so it's all mm. very safe, uh, very fast. It reduces turn time, um, and now we don't have to fight hop creep as much. So we maybe <laughs> on yet another iteration of a co complete revamp of our of our recipes to accommodate that. Well, that's all we have time for. Neil, JC, Henry, thank you all. Thanks for listening in on this panel on Hazy IPA. We have panels on West Coast IPA and wine beer hybrids coming up over the next couple weeks. But in the meantime, G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and reliability with 24-7 service and support. BSG hops are sourced directly from growers and processed at their FSSC certified facility. Try Old Orchard's flavored craft juice concentrate blends in your next craft beverage. The AccuBrew system is designed to give you unprecedented insight into the fermentation process. ProBrew's rotary can fillers achieve precise and consistent filling volumes. USWaterSystems.com builds American-made water treatment systems with brewers in mind. Twin Monkeys offers customizable packaging solutions for every craft. The soft lager range from Fermentis covers all your lager needs. And ABS Commercial is your full-service brewery outfitter. Of course, if you appreciated what we do here on the podcast, please subscribe. It's your subscriptions that help make it possible for us to bring you this podcast every week. Uh, and we sure would appreciate you uh, subscribing to the magazine, supporting what we do, uh, and also enjoying all the additional content that we uh, pour our hearts and souls into through that magazine uh, uh, all year round. Uh, of course, we have no immediate plans for another Brewers Retreat. Uh, if you'd like to be the first to know about future retreats, go to beerandbrewing.com, sign up for our email newsletter. It's free, and uh, we will send you lots of information about that stuff as it becomes available. Uh, until next week, cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those who love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. <laughs>